Resolute Square. Welcome to The Zero Line, produced by Resolute Square. I'm Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, and every week we'll be bringing you inside Ukraine's war for liberty and liberation against the Russian enemy, while explaining how a victory by us on the battlefield isn't just vital for the Ukrainian people, but for the world as a whole. We will push back against the lies regarding this war for freedom and take you straight to the front lines of the fight for democracy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero Line. I'm Lisa Senecal, Executive Editor of Resolute Square, and I am here with, as always, Sarah Ashton Cirillo, who is now back in Ukraine. I'm here in Ukraine, Lisa. The reason I'm smiling, so oftentimes maybe the audience is trying to pick up the energy that we have in our discussions. And when we were uh, just coming on air, we were discussing the decor behind me and (laughs) the technology as well. And what's important to realize is this place that I am broadcasting from right now was top of the line in the 1970s. doesn't matter that we're 45, 50 years past that. What matters is that I'm here on the Zero Line with you, Lisa, and the entire audience from Resolute Square coming to you direct from Kiev for the first time in two months. It was Washington, D.C. It was Central America. Now we're back at the front lines of this fight against tyranny and despotism and autocracy. And as we've discussed so many times, the epicenter, the heartbeat for that fight is right here in Kiev. Yeah, absolutely. For those of you who are listening to this and not watching the video version, behind Sarah is, I don't know, gold chintz curtains. I don't know what the hell that weird flowery fabric is that looks like it's Soviet era. Um, and and next to her is a television that actually has tubes in it, which I have to say, I do miss being able to like bang on the side of the television and have it work better. That does not work with my my flat screens. When you and Rick and Stuart fly to Kiev after victory, then we'll make sure you can go on a tour of places where you can start banging the drum of freedom and banging the televisions. Perfect. It, it seems like there might be a lot of opportunities for both. <laughs> so today we want to cover, obviously, Sarah being back in Ukraine as still a member of the armed forces of Ukraine, which must mean that all the Putin apologists and conspiracy theorists who've been claiming that she is no longer a member of the armed forces of Ukraine must be, this is going to come as a shock to everybody, wrong. They are very wrong. They had been asking when I was getting back. They said I had been thrown out. I had, we talked about it here. I was still an active duty member of the armed forces. And today is a very important benchmark for me in Ukraine. Although I've been here close to two years, I've been here 22 months. Today marks the one year anniversary of when I transferred from the Crimean Tatar uh, battalion to the Kharkiv Defense Forces. And now I've served with the Kharkiv Defense Forces for one year straight. And during that time, as the listeners uh, may be familiar with, I fought directly at the Zero Line, which is where we got the show's name from, with the Kharkiv Defense Forces. I guarded the border uh, against uh, Russian Belgorod Oblast, where we carry out a significant amount of uh, actions against the Russians, and made some trips back to the United States, uh, worked uh, with the Interior Ministry on some projects. So to serve one year straight as a, a foreign contract fighter, as a soldier in the armed forces of Ukraine, a non-commissioned officer now, I've been promoted, 
to achieve a milestone like that makes me look back over the course of the year, but it also encourages me about the future. And no matter what the naysayers are, are trying to espouse, the future is bright for freedom. And the moment we stop believing it's bright is the moment that we fall into that, you know, that rut that you always talk about, to fall into the abyss, and we can never allow that to happen. Yeah, part of not falling into that abyss is Congress getting its shit together in the U.S. and funding Ukraine, which is also tied to funding Israel, funding humanitarian aid, and of course, coming up with a border agreement. So we definitely have to talk about that some today, Sarah, because you know, depending on um, what moment Mitch McConnell is interviewed, he has either decided that he's all in for Trump and he's not going to do anything on the border to a statement he made just a little while ago saying, you know, we have to do something. We definitely have to get Ukraine funding through and certainly hope that there's a border deal. So backing up just a, a half step, there were multiple leaders from the Baltic state that visited with Speaker Johnson. They, they've been in D.C. today, were in D.C. yesterday, trying to rally support because the Baltic states are absolutely doing their share uh, from a GDP percentage perspective and from a public outreach perspective to show why Russia is a danger to NATO, why Russia is a danger to the United States. Ukraine is the battlefront, but Russia is a danger to all the free world. And so Speaker Johnson brought up uh, potentially splitting the bill of a border from Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan aid. This is what was mentioned to me last week when we did the broadcast from Capitol Hill. And I'm in favor of seeing anything that allows an up and down vote on these very pressing issues. No one's saying that national security is not affected by the border, and clearly national security for the United States is affected by Ukraine and our other allies in making sure that the U.S. interests are protected. However, as long as Congress, both the House and Senate, drags their feet, then the American taxpayer is left living in fear uh, across all fronts. So if Speaker Johnson and Senator McConnell, Senator Schumer can get together and make the decision to separate the bills, let's get an up and down vote. Let's put these public servants, these elected officials, force them on record to make a decision as to whether they support freedom or whether they are going to continue to carry the mantra of evil, carry the mantra of Vlad Putin, carry the mantra of Xi, and carry the mantra of Zhang in North Korea. It's really obvious that Speaker Johnson has no interest in getting near uh, a border bill. He is not going to want to continue to bundle that, obviously, because I, I do think that there is a group of Republicans in the House that very much want to see this funding for Ukraine happen. They're all apparently terrified to cross Trump on coming up with some type of compromise finally after, you know, 45, 50 years um, on border security. We've got to separate those issues. I totally agree with you. It, it puts people in a much more difficult place if they have to vote up or down on funding Ukraine. Yes. And one of the, you and I oftentimes, and Resolute Square focuses oftentimes on the lower house, oftentimes on the dysfunction of the House of Representatives, especially in this election year. That said, 
I'm very upset that the Senate seems to not just be, you know, in a sense, they are being influenced by President Trump, former President Trump. But more importantly, they're trying to gauge the actions of what the House is going to do to their bill. And that's a dereliction of duty. People expect sober debate. People expect these senators to be literally the wise men and women of the United States. They should not be derelict in their duties of presenting a bill. And they, too, have the power to separate the bill. So, again, these senators should be forcing the hand of the lower house since they know that there is tremendous support for all of these actions in the Senate itself. Yeah, I'm I'm old enough to remember, and I'm, I'm not saying that facetiously. I truly am old enough to remember when the U.S. Senate was the more mature, deliberative, serious body and had real influence with what it did on its side over what would happen on the House side. Now there has been so much degradation of the quality of of individuals in the Senate that there is you know that uh, chaos vibe from the House has definitely been brought in to influence on the Senate side, and that's no good for anybody except the extremists who would like to see Trump back in office. J.D. Vance, senator from Ohio, appeared in RT's uh, tweet, uh, a tweet from Russia Today. They take these lines that uh, the senators and congressmen say, and they literally uh, utilize them in their own propaganda. So I'm not going to be the conspiracy theorist and suggest that there's like payoffs or, or, or such or quid pro quos. However, Russia knows how to jump on and exploit this chaos. It's what we discussed on the border, exploiting the chaos that's taking place all across the world. And this is why it is such a serious threat to the United States, is it's not that we are facing an enemy that's coming directly at us and we're having this battlefield. That's what we're doing in Ukraine. The United States, and in this fight to continue to keep the republic operational, let alone thrive, to keep the United States republic operational and to keep democracy functional, we are handing pieces to these enemies in order to then allow them to use against us. And these self-inflicted wounds, as we head closer to the 2024 elections, are going to become more and more pronounced in the foreign policy sphere and in this battle to make certain that the United States holds its preeminence in the face of Xi, Putin, Zhang, and the Ayatollah. Yeah, there is the actual battle within the House and Senate to to get things taken care of. But there's also winning the messaging war with the American people. And so let's talk about NATO a little bit. You mentioned the Baltic states and the meetings that they've been having in the U.S. And this is this is not a recent loss in the war of information and messaging. This is long-term that Americans are so disconnected from the value of being in NATO, what the importance, the power is, you know, where we have that ocean between us. We, we are as large as we are. But can you talk a little bit about the impact on Americans of the weakening of NATO and which 
our NATO partners become more at risk, the more powerful Putin becomes. I'm going to back up one moment in this discussion of NATO and point out that in 2017 and 2019, under President Trump, the United States States sent troops to Ukraine to train as part of NATO integration exercises with the armed forces of Ukraine. So it's not a new idea that NATO is involved in Ukraine. And again, President Trump himself allowed, as the commander-in-chief of the U.S. military, allowed U.S. troops to be here on Ukrainian soil. There's more troops that were on Ukrainian soil from the United States under President Trump than there has been ever during the outbreak of the full-scale invasion since 2022. We have to continuously bring up this point. Ukraine is not a foreign entity to NATO or this sort of exotic uh, state that uh, NATO is being called to rescue. Ukraine has been a partner of the NATO coalition for a long time. Regarding NATO being at risk and and how it would pull the United States in, the former uh, past commander of NATO just stated very clearly uh, this week that the Russians will attack other parts of Europe if this uh, Ukraine uh, war for freedom fails. Additionally, the United Kingdom warned that they were at risk. This came from the uh, commander within the uh, United Kingdom's uh, military, that uh, they are at risk of being struck by Russian military capacity. So we lack, as a society, the ability to really look forward because everything is in this sort of 24-hour news cycle. If we had to go bail out the United Kingdom, our number one partner in all things, intelligence, military, et cetera, language, uh, roots, if we had to bail out the United Kingdom, it would be infinitely more expensive. And we would have to make certain that our troops were there wherever the United Kingdom troops were under attack. Expanding that across NATO, which covers most of the European Union and some other nations, that if there was ever the so-called Article 5, what Article 5 does is it means that if there's an attack on one part of NATO territory, the rest of the countries must come together to decide on a response. It doesn't automatically mean a response. But once you call that Article 5, something serious enough has taken place that will warrant a response. That means U.S. troops on the ground in Europe fighting to defend in Ukraine, where we have very, you know, very close ties. But it could also mean fighting to defend Turkey. It could theoretically mean fighting to defend Hungary. Hungary, one of the countries that has actually been named an adversary to the United States. With Ukraine, if when we win this victory and we liberate Ukraine, then it lessens the chances of any other nation being attacked by Russia, which means the United States' infinitely smaller chance of having to commit boot anywhere outside of the U.S. in a conflict zone, especially on the ground. Stuart Stevens on our I've heard him say it a couple times on cable news and also on on our strategy session show last night, was talking about how we are really looking at Ukraine now fighting a war that we thought we had won in 1945. You know, they this is the last vestiges of World War II. 
and and Nazism and you know the the fight against uh, freedom and democracy. And what you're saying is is so important, Sarah, because we are we were there. We already fought this war. Americans, hundreds of thousands spent time fighting for freedom and democracy, lost their lives fighting for freedom and democracy in Europe. So the idea that we don't understand that we can prevent the need for that ever happening again by supporting Ukraine. This is the front line. This is where victory can happen. And uh, we we have to much more effectively be getting that message out to the American people because I don't think they make that link between what people sacrificed, American people sacrificed um, in World War II with what is happening now. I'm very glad you brought up Stuart Stevens. Uh, Stuart's understanding of history doesn't uh, just come from history books. After the collapse of the Warsaw Pact, after the collapse of this communist front, Stuart was working in Eastern Europe as an advisor to elections, as a person who was literally on the ground watching history unfold. And when we look back and understand the exuberance that came about with the freedom, and now we see Czech and we see Poland and we see Slovakia all in the European Union being in a very dynamic area, although they only had their freedom at roughly the same time as the Ukrainians did, all the Baltic countries, etc. When we continuously faltered in supporting Ukraine because we imagined this buffer or this idea that it was not truly European, even though the world now understands Ukraine to be the furthest eastern point of Europe. When we go back as well, so that's the early 1990s. When we go back a little bit further to 1945, let's talk about two other years, 1953 and 1979 slash 1980. Why are 1953 and 1979, 1980 tied into 1945? Because we fought a war against North Korea. We fought against, in the sense, the Iranians who took our hostages for 440 plus days, utilizing the United States' pawns in we were fighting the Soviets or uh, the Soviet mentality in 1945, the Nazi mentality, which is now part of the Russian mentality. We were fighting against North Korea, where we're still in a, a perpetual state of war against these people. And then we have understood who the Ayatollah has been for the last 40 years. And because of this, if we've been fighting these wars for 70, 80 years, when we were at uh, arguably a stronger uh, looked at in a stronger manner than we are across the world today and around the globe. What happens if we fail here on the heels of having failed in Afghanistan? And we ask ourselves, what does that mean to be in the United States? A term that has racist connotations, but was utilized manifest destiny, right? The last vestiges of this idea of American exceptionalism would crumble uh, if we go ahead and lose in Afghanistan or, or failed, I don't want to call it lose, failed in Afghanistan, failed in Ukraine, and then it will be much easier to destroy the democratic ideals and pillars from within the United States by the fascists who are attempting to do just that. <sighs> That's sobering. I'd love to say that we're going to turn to uh, a more upbeat, hopeful topic, but 
you know, <laughs> our podcast is what it is. I'm going to throw something out there that just aired minutes before we came to record this. Uh, for those listening, it's it's Wednesday night um, in about 10 p.m. Uh, Ukraine time, early after late afternoon in, in, in the United States. Victoria Nuland, the Undersecretary uh, for uh, European Affairs, made a surprise visit to Kiev today. She just held a press conference, and to paraphrase her, or nearly quote her, Vladimir Putin has some surprises coming his way. So when one of the secretaries, uh, one who's so experienced as Ms. Nuland is, uh, makes that statement in public, directly naming Vladimir Putin, then I do believe we can end this note understanding that in 2024, we will find ways towards victory and we will find a way to put an end to this Russian threat, along with the threats of our other enemies, specifically Iran, North Korea, and and some of the other nations we mentioned. One of the things that we are going to see exploited by the whole disinformation ecosystem coming out of Russia and being so very well assisted by some people in the United States is the revelation, the the uh, reports in the last couple of days about a potential shakeup at the top of the Ukrainian military. Can you talk a little bit about that? Without getting into specifics, so the audience who hasn't heard, there's been talk of changing out uh, the commander in chief of the Ukrainian military, uh, uh, General Zaluzhny, who has uh, is very well regarded within Ukraine and internationally. However, as as we must understand, Ukrainian military, as in every democracy, answers to a civilian government, a civilian government that has made great strides in in ending the corruption here, uh, made great strides in making certain that the rule of law exists. And so if and when the commander in chief of the military is replaced or transferred and there's, quote, a shakeup or, or some changes do take place, I'm confident in President Zelensky and his administration and the Ministry of Defense will be doing so in order to try to effect a more positive outcome. General Zeluzhny has been in his position since late 2021, before the full-scale invasion. It's not unusual for wartime presidents and their wartime cabinet to replace generals in different areas of the war. And all of us in the armed forces of Ukraine respond to our chain of command. Ultimately, the chain of command uh, begins and ends with President Zelensky, goes down to the Minister of Defense, and then and only then does it come into the military. We recognize that, and it's not going to affect what we do, except planning will change, personality will change, but the end result will remain the same, which is to liberate Ukraine, return it to the country's 1991 borders, and find an implementation of President Zelensky's 10-point peace formula. Sarah, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that Putin might have some surprises in store for him in 2024. Um, We can assume that that was because that was an American who was saying that these are not going to be good surprises. This is not like there's going to be a really great birthday party for him this year. This is this is going to be something probably a little bit more negative than that. We are about to uh, head into the third year of the illegal invasion of Ukraine by Russia. What do you see as the big accomplishments in these first two years? Things have certainly become, I'm not going to say intractable because 
there there has been progress and there will continue to be progress made by Ukraine. What are you imagining for the next year? Let's not lose sight of the idea that they expected this thing to last a couple of weeks, this invasion. They expected this special military operation to be over in a couple of weeks. Whether it was three-day special military operation or a couple of weeks, they had plans to partition Ukraine. They had plans to put in power a puppet government. So one of the successes is that more than 80% of the land that was taken during the full-scale invasion has been recovered. We have not been pushed back, although we have not been pushed back during this winter counteroffensive by Russia against Ukraine, although they have uh, significantly more men and women, they have significantly more weapons, more firepower, etc. They are unable to break the Ukrainian lines. So those are two big points of success. Uh, additionally, moving forward, I think with these long-range uh, guided uh, bombs that have been uh, now sent over to Ukraine from the United States that came on the uh, right before uh, Secretary Newland arrived, we'll find continuing deep strikes, bringing the war back to Russia, hits on their supply lines. Ultimately, and I said this uh, in a television interview at the end of December, I would like to see the Kerch Bridge, which connects mainland Russia to Ukrainian Crimea, be destroyed. That's a hope. We've hit it several times, and, and I think we're going to continue to target that. And ultimately, win in two ways. One, the military front. Two, we will continue to erode the confidence that the Russian people have in Vladimir Putin and, and the, his Kremlin war criminals. And watch as there's going to be more and more disenfranchisement uh, and, and disillusionment by the Russian people against Vlad Putin, while we will make some breakthroughs on the Eastern Front, the Northern Front, and the Southern Front, and we will see significantly more visible signs of liberation in 2024 than we did in 2023 as we prepared for this uh, more protracted battle against these criminals and terrorists. And you are back there as kind of circling back to where we started today. You are in Ukraine once again, can you wrap up our conversation today talking about what that's like? You've made these trips back and forth several times now since you first went to Ukraine. This was a long time outside Ukraine this time. What is it like to go back and once again be part of uh, the, obviously you were a member of the military when you were in the in the U.S., um, but to actively be there now and and be part of this, it's one of the most poignant questions you've asked me in, in all of our shows and all the time we've you know spoken, Lisa. One of the things I wasn't sure about was my desire to be back here. It's the middle of the winter. I don't even mean being in the military. Middle of the winter, uh, air raids within hours of arriving back. Middle of the day, air raid sirens go off very loud. I posted that on my Twitter timeline, and it. I was, wasn't sure how I was going to react, not in the sense of danger or not, but was my heart still in it? And I recognized immediately that my heart and soul and passion for the world to conquer this tyranny was very much still in it. And as long as the Ukrainian military has a reason for me to serve them, I understood that no matter where on the globe I might be, I am absolutely a proud member of the army here and someone who is absolutely okay and in fact honored to be at the zero line still, understanding that 
no matter the discourse taking place in the United States or elsewhere in, in, in different countries, this is the zero line today and will be for the recognizable future against the most vicious tyrants in the world. And there's nowhere I'd rather be than to fight against them and, and see this fight to the finish. And if the Ukrainian military decides to station me elsewhere or when it comes time to come home to the United States, I will be wherever democracy calls. And right now, democracy is calling me here. Well, we are so honored, appreciative that you answered that call and that I truly believe you will continue to answer that call even after Putin has been defeated and he slinks back uh, into Russia. And it would be nice if he was not still president, but you know, I'll be happy with the Ukrainian victory. We'll get to the rest of it after that. Thank you, Sarah, for being here again this week, for sharing all your information that you do with us, for letting us chase you around the globe um, and have these conversations. I hope next week when we talk, we can be talking about how this uh, Ukrainian funding finally went through and uh, maybe even uh, progress on a border deal. Of, of all the groups of people I appreciate, the Resolute Square audience is at the top of that because they truly understand what's at stake. And because of that, now that I'm here in country again, I, I know you and I are looking forward, we've talked about it with the production team, of bringing forward more Ukrainians, more people on the ground, their experiences. If people want to understand what the zero line means in this fight for freedom and what's happening in Ukraine, there is nowhere else they need to turn but uh, ResoluteSquare.com, Zero Line Podcast. And uh, going into this third year, we're going to be bringing uh, the audience uh, people who are living the fight and who understand what it means to be fighting for their literal lives and how we can accomplish victory for people around the world. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks, everybody, for being here again this week. Please subscribe to the podcast. Share it amplify it as much as possible. Part of what we need to be doing is educating the American public about what the stakes really are here. And sharing this podcast is one way that you can help us do that. Um, so thank you again, and we will see you and uh, speak with you next week. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you for listening to The Zero Line, a podcast brought to you by Resolute Square. Resolute Square's mission is to inform, lead, and connect. And the Zero Line is one of the tools that followers of Resolute Square can use to fight back against tyranny while championing democracy. Please like and subscribe to the Zero Line wherever you podcast and follow us on Twitter at Resolute Square or visit ResoluteSquare.com. Thanks once more for hanging out at the Zero Line.